Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello, I'm Alex Kruger in London, and you're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs, and every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Today I'm speaking to John Simpson, the veteran foreign correspondent and world affairs editor for the BBC. He's been back to Afghanistan for the first time since Kabul fell to the Taliban in August. John, you've been covering Afghanistan for decades. You saw the Taliban when they were in power before. Are they different this time? They've been making a great effort to convince the world that they are. I think they are. I mean, it's, a, it's very early and they've got a lot of pressures on them to look and sound like a kind of regular government. But when you look back to the period when they were in power before, 1996 to 2001, uh, when I, I used to go quite often uh, to, to uh, Afghanistan, they're very, very different from, from that time. And that's not to say that they, uh, there aren't tendencies within the Taliban to be exactly the same as they were. And there are various, all sorts of well-recorded examples of, of brutality and cruelty, very reminiscent of 1996 onwards. But in terms of the way that the government runs things in Kabul, they do seem to be different and they seem to want to be different. How long that will last uh, if they don't get the kind of support from the West in particular that all of this is intended to gather, then who knows uh, how, how quickly they may revert to something else. But I would say that at the moment they want to seem different and it's kind of working pretty much on the kind of street level in 
Kabul uh, and and indeed in the other places that I that I visited. But that's not to say anything about the, how they'll behave in the future if if it doesn't come about that they get Western support. And what was Kabul like? How did the city feel? Well, I was there, what, a couple of months now after the fall. I think it must have been very weird in the, in the early couple of weeks and so and so forth after after they took over. But now it's relatively normal. I mean, it 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 looked fairly similar to how it's always looked in the twenty years since the Taliban were thrown out uh, in in two thousand and one. So that's to say, uh, plenty of goods in the shop still, although a declining amount for various reasons, plenty of cars in the streets, which of course was never the case uh, when the Taliban were in power before, and people fairly willing to talk openly about their experience of the Taliban and, and what's going on. And that that I take it is is probably the most important element of, of of the lot. And what was what was the mood among the people you spoke to? Were, were they resigned? Were they fearful? Did they think this was a good thing? Did they? Well, it, I mean, Kabul is different, of course, from the rest of the country. But did did people even think, well, it's got to be better than? the internationally backed government, which had a terrible reputation for corruption and incompetence. Yes, absolutely. A justified justified, uh, reputation. Um, Well, inevitably, people were were different in what they said. Uh, It depended on their class and their income and their sex, their gender, um, and so forth. But basically, uh, a lot of people that I spoke to seemed to be putting a good face on it. Well, at least uh, the the Taliban will bring an end to fighting. Um, Although actually there really wasn't very much fighting before the Taliban uh, took over. Um, But uh, there is uh, very much a sense, uh, starting to be a sense that the Taliban aren't delivering what everybody hoped that they would deliver, which is, uh, firm control of the streets, firm control of, of crime and disorder. And there are lots and lots of, of cases uh, every day of cars being hijacked, of people being accosted by, uh, by bandits, essentially, and taken away for, uh, for ransom. It happened to my crew and I, what exactly happened, we we couldn't work out. But a couple of guys on motorbikes turned up with weapons. And one of them jokingly said, we've come to to take you away. It didn't happen. I, in fact, because I, they, they, they spoke diary and because I don't speak diary, I couldn't understand what it was uh, all about until I spoke to our colleague uh, afterwards, um, who explained what had happened. But it, I mean, he couldn't understand it. I can't understand it. it but it is a, a, it was a kind of symptom of the general sort of lawlessness. I mean, I've spent so much time in Afghanistan over the decades. Nothing like that has ever happened to, to me before. And I, I can't help thinking that 
whether or not it was in any way serious or maybe just even a joke doesn't really matter. It's the, the fact that nobody ever said that kind of thing uh, in the past and they are saying it now. When the Taliban were in power before, they weren't actually very interested in government or anything really outside of, of Islamic law. 20 years later, they came back. They found this structure of government had been put in place and however imperfect, it had delivered a, a measure of prosperity to people. Now, are they? what do they think of this and how are they coping with the expectations of, of managing a country, of running an economy? Well, I really wish I'd been able to speak to them before, Alex. I mean, I think this is an absolute key question. Did they come in thinking it was 1996 all over again? Or did they realise uh, how much a city like, like Kabul had changed in 20 years? I, I don't know that they did. And I, I get the impression it might have been quite a kind of fierce awakening for them to find that all the expectations that people now have, that their government uh, will protect them under certain circumstances, that they can rely on, uh, uh, if probably corrupt government, but nevertheless, they, they have their expectations of what a corrupt government ought to be doing. And I think that must have been quite a shock to, to many of the, the Taliban people coming into power and seeing that Things were different. People wanted, uh, had greater expectations of their government than anything that they'd, uh, they'd imagined in the past. Because it was 20 years. It's not like it was six months and then this experiment collapsed. You've got a whole generation who have, have come up to, to, to see Afghanistan just as another developing country, however imperfect, however flawed. Are those people pushing back at all? Did you see any signs of not necessarily armed resistance to Taliban rule, but, but political resistance? There have been reports, for example, of women in some parts of the country demonstrating for education. Yes, I, I was told that I wasn't able to check it out, but I was told that every day there are demonstrations of different kinds demanding, well, different things really, but often the right to education, the right for women to be able to live their lives as they choose, by men to demand the, the, the kind of freedom from oppressive policing, for instance, that they've, they've come to expect. Afghanistan was a deeply, deeply flawed country, and it was one of the, the very poorest on earth. But um, there the were the were signs that it was improving. And exactly as you say, you've got to be about 35, 36 to remember with any accuracy, any kind of state uh, before the, um, the, the just recent present. And so it, it, there, there are expectations which everybody has and which they're not prepared just quickly to relinquish. And the interesting thing for me was uh, I got the feeling that the Taliban had grasped that it was going to be really, really hard to go back to those old days. I mean, actually, 
I think perhaps the most critical element of it is simply the size of of the population. By uh, 2001, when the Taliban left office, there were supposedly, I mean, nobody uh, actually counted heads, but there was supposedly something like um, five and a half million people in the entire country. Uh, I've no idea whether that is true, but that's a figure that's banded about. And now it's right up to sort of 30, 30 million, 40 million. And it's very, very hard uh, to control a country of that kind of size. You can just about do it if, if, if there's half a million people in the capital city, you can run a, a, a city like that with vigilantes uh, meeting out rough justice on the street corners, which I, I saw plenty of uh, between 1996 and 2001. Much, much harder now if you're to do something which local passers-by don't like, don't approve of, and they're there in numbers, quite difficult for a small group of, of vigilantes, for instance, to impose their will. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to the new Statesman on digital, in print, or both, for as little as one pound a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. And what about the economy? Because international donors froze 
the transfer of funds to Afghanistan after the Taliban takeover. And yet international aid accounted for 40 percent of the economy. What happens when you take away 40 percent from an already small economy? Are the effects beginning to be felt? They really are. Uh, They're more felt kind of emotionally, uh, I think, just at the moment than in hard, real terms. But people are getting terrified of what's going to happen. It's it's quite rare to find anybody who uh, gets a decent pay packet. And again and again and again must have happened, oh, dozens and dozens of times, if not more to me, people saying, that they used to be paid up until the time the Taliban took over. They've had no money since. And there are plenty of goods in the shops and there's plenty of food around. I mean, okay, fine. A lot of that is the fruit that comes in from the, the kind of end of harvest time. But nevertheless, I mean, you could walk down the street of any town or city or village, indeed, that I that I went to and see plenty of food around. It's not the supply that's uh, in question, it's people's ability to pay for it. And again and again, as I say, I spoke to people who genuinely were running out of cash. When they run out of cash, doesn't matter how much uh, is, is in the, uh, in the, on the market stalls or in the shops, people are going to begin to starve. They're already starving. I mean, I, I, a man told me that he'd had to take his, I think, seven children to the mosque and just simply abandon them there because he couldn't afford to feed them any longer, couldn't really afford to feed himself. And he said, I couldn't bear to see my children starve to death in front of my eyes. And I think that sort of thing, you hear more and more and more instances of that all the time. So if it comes to, uh, if it's going to be a hard winter and everybody uh, says they think it is, then I think we're going to see real death on a quite a large scale, death from starvation. This is why I, I, I mean, I got really quite emotional, which is, you know, I've tried in the time-honoured old BBC way not to get too involved in anything I report, but I just came down from interviewing a family who, you know, would, uh, under any other circumstances, be likely to, to die of hunger really quite soon. And, I mean, I, I, I have to say, I don't want to go into any details, but my, my, my team made sure that that family at least will make it through the winter and will be okay. You can't do that for every family and there must be so many no. families and you must have seen so much of this. Well, I, uh, yeah, I mean, you've just got to look around you just to see how many thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of people are now threatened with this. They're on the very, very cliff edge. And in a moment... Uh, who knows? Uh, they could be lost, and that's a very um, that's a very moving thing. I mean, I've covered uh, sadly quite a few, um, you know, instances of mass starvation and so forth over the over the decades. But uh, uh, to see to see an entire society which is about to head that way and it isn't quite there yet is something that I've never experienced before. And 
I found it deeply, deeply moving and, and unsettling. What should donors do? Because there is this dilemma. Do you give money to a Taliban government with all the human rights abuses that it's associated with? Or do you, do you give money to a Taliban government? Or do you say, this is the consequence of, of what's happened and we're not going to give any money at all? What should, what should donors do? Well, I think, I mean, there's two things. and There's, some, there's plenty that individual uh, people can do. Um, there are aid agencies uh, who are working in, in Afghanistan, regardless of who's in power and what the attitude of the outside world is. And the, the uh, World Food Programme of, of the United Nations is one. And there's, there's a, a whole lot of others. Um, so, I mean, it is possible if one feels uh, so inclined to, to give money to those agencies and the money will go to the people that, uh, that it's intended for. I mean, one of the things people say again and again and again, I think is perhaps a little bit of an excuse, but they say, oh, well, we, we don't know. It'll all go to the Taliban. The Taliban will steal it. Not so. According to the agencies that I spoke to, the Taliban themselves are, are getting really scared of what's happening and they're desperate for, for outside agencies to come in and sort things out for themselves. And I, I saw uh, a, a distribution by the World Food Programme of, of large amounts of food and the Taliban were just standing back uh, about four soldiers, just really making sure that nobody, you know, there wasn't any trouble. And I think that that's pretty general picture over the whole of the country. What, what the problem is, I suspect, is that outside governments, Western governments in particular, think that they've got more time to play with than they actually have. And I think they're trying to put pressure on the Taliban to promise that they'll behave properly. And in the meantime, they're blocking, of course, the reserves of, the, of, of, of Afghanistan and any kind of, uh, of, of financial aid going in from governments. And uh, it, my feeling, having been there, is that this is a, a game that should have been played months ago, uh, if it was going to be. It should have been played in August when the Taliban, but, but not not in November, not at the end of November, when food stocks are, are well, people's ability to buy the food stocks is so appallingly threatened. It, that, that's just my, my feeling from, from having seen it. China and Russia, particularly China, pushing large amounts of food into the country, but there's all sorts of evidence that the Taliban are quite uncomfortable about having Chinese or being reliant on Chinese help. And they would actively like to have Western powers sending in help as well. That's fascinating. I hadn't realised that China was becoming such a player in post-fall of Kabul, Afghanistan. Yeah, I mean, you don't see them uh, there. You don't see any sign, really, of, of Chinese influence. But it's just that the the, um, the Taliban themselves talk about their reluctance to be dependent on China, from which one assumes that the Chinese are saying, leave it all to us. We can sort out all your problems if you'll just uh, let us and if you'll 
you know, make certain agreements with us. And one of the, the arguments that comes up uh, again and again is uh, about, the, of course, the Chinese government's uh, uh, approach to, to ethnic um, uh, minorities who are Muslims. And the Taliban are uh, deeply reluctant to be wholly dependent on, on a, a, a country which treats its Muslim uh, inhabitants in the way China does. And you managed to get out of Kabul. You were in Bamiyan in central Afghanistan. What was the atmosphere like there? How different was it? Well, it was very different. I, I saw more poverty in Bamiyan than I did in, in Kabul. Maybe that was just because I didn't go to the right places. In fact, I think that is quite likely. But Bamiyan is a, a town which has been uh, quite prosperous in the past, but which is now really, I, I, I would have thought, almost entirely composed of people who in any other uh, society would be regarded as, as bitterly poor. And that was, uh, that was really very painful to, uh, to see again, yet again, uh, people who are just clinging on by their fingernails and who, you know, already starting uh, to fall into uh, hunger and chaos. And there was more, that was more evident, more obvious in Bamiyan than in Kabul, where there are greater reserves of cash and food and supplies and families that will help and so forth. So I've been lucky enough to work in Afghanistan. And I think it's something that people who've never been there are surprised to hear, but there is something very captivating about the country. There is something very endearing about it. And when I saw what was happening in Kabul, I felt sick, but in particular thinking of the journalists I'd worked with, the young women journalists working for the BBC's Persian, services, per Persian language service, and to think of what was happening to them. You must know so many people, and how how do you feel about their future? Are you are you afraid for them? What have they told you? Well, I, yes. I mean, all you can do is is listen to people and uh, make your judgments, of course, about whether their their fears are likely. Um, but yes, I mean, I I I, I thought that uh, I did, I spoke to three women whom I used to know uh, as journalists there, and none of them was working as a journalist now. They're too they're too frightened, and I, I'm afraid. I I think their fears are are thoroughly thoroughly justified. It it does depend, I think, on the way that things go. If West the Western countries were to say, okay, we used to fight you when you were the Taliban. We tried everything in our power to stop you becoming the, the government. Now you have become the government. We are happy to let bygones be bygones and do our what we can to encourage you to behave well in government and, if necessary, succeed. Uh, it's a, quite a hard thing to say that to, to uh, the United States. Britain have lost loads and loads of soldiers, spent trillions of dollars uh, in, in fighting the Taliban. But I, I think 
if that were said in one way or another, one level, privately or publicly, I think it would enable the Taliban to be more prepared to behave like a uh, any other uh, government, rather than the this ultra extreme religious doctrinal government that they have been in the past, and I I just think it's important to say you don't see really any sign of that now. You know, I mean, when they were in power before, uh, they'd conduct searches of houses to see if they could find any image of any living creature, beat the people that own such an image. I mean, it could be anything, you know, it's a picture of a bird or, a, you know, a little kid or, or, or something like that, a, a child's decoration for a child's room. And those people would be, would be beaten and the picture would be destroyed. They're not doing that now. And my guess is they realise that such a thing would be absolutely impossible. When will you next be in Afghanistan? Well, I don't know. I mean, if it were up to me, I mean, you talked about how lovely it is. I, I, I really think it, it, it's, it's just about my favourite country on earth. Something about the, the mountains, something about the people, something about the way they are. I mean, you know, over the years, Afghans have well, given their lives uh, for me. Several, several people have died to protect me. And that kind of, of, of loyalty and affection is, 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 very, um, is very impressive. And wh- when, you, when you've benefited from it, you, you can't just easily turn your back on the place. My own circumstances are changing in that I'm going to be uh, presenting a, a, a weekly program in the new year. And that means uh, that my chances of getting back to Afghanistan uh, reasonably soon will be pretty slight. I mean, it takes forever to get there and it takes forever to get out again. And I won't have that on a weekly program. I wouldn't really probably have that amount of scope. But, uh, you know, I'm not being sentimental. I'm not putting it on for effect when I say that Afghanistan is really very, very close to my heart. And I can't tell you how happy I was when I walked down the aircraft steps and just felt the air and smelt smells and saw the sights of, 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 of Afghanistan again. So until I do get back there, I'll be really, really sad. I hope it'll be soon. John Simpson, thank you for talking to us. This has been the World Review from the New Statesman. You can read all our international coverage on newstatesman.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend or even an enemy and rate us and leave a nice review. The producer has been Adrian Bradley. The team will be back on Thursday. I'm Alex Kruger. Thank you for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.